Biohacking. Performance. Mastery. Mindset. This is a show about getting better every single day. The Hack Life with Joe Levin. Welcome to the show. All right, I'm here with Dr. Anna Lemke, author of The Dopamine Nation. Dr. Lemke, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Really excited to have you on. You know, we've I've I read your book last year and I was like I have to I have to talk to this author and then I reached out to you and you know it, it took almost uh, like 4 months from there. you had a busy you had a busy uh, year and I had a busy year so it's just really nice to finally connect with you and uh, I really just appreciated your your work uh, your work so it's it's great to finally connect. Oh, well thank you and thank you for inviting me on your show. I thought uh, I thought it'd be just nice to kind of start things off with you know, kind of maybe your background and just how you got started with dopamine research. So I'm a psychiatrist. I went to Stanford Medical School and did my psychiatry training here and then joined the faculty with a plan of treating people for mood disorders, things like depression and bipolar disorder and co-occurring anxiety. Um, But through a series of unfortunate events, I quickly realized that without also integrating treatment for addiction, I wasn't going to be able to help my patients. So that started a very long journey of re-education on my part because I didn't learn much in medical school or residency about addiction. And then it got me really interested in the neuroscience and what was actually happening in the brain. And for me, the neuroscience was revelatory to understand why it is that people will give up so much um, in pursuit of their, uh, you know, drug of choice. And then um, I I began to realize that although I had never self-identified as a person with addiction, that in fact, there were all kinds of little ways in which I too had become addicted uh, to various types of digital content, which I talk about in the book. Yeah. I love, by the way, that you weaved in some of your own personal stories about um, quote unquote addiction. I mean, some of them, you know, wouldn't have jumped out on me, but even like your relationship with your mother. And how you had yeah. this insight about like, wow, like, you know, I just started to notice by doing some of your, by doing some of the practices that you were telling your patients to do, you're like, I got all this insight out of it. And you would have never thought that, which I thought was just beautiful. Yeah. I think it's fair to say that over the years, I've probably learned more from my patients than they've learned from me. It's one of the well-kept secrets of uh, my profession, possibly. Uh, yeah. And I've learned so much from people in recovery from all kinds of addictions. And as I talk about in the book, I really consider them to be modern day prophets because they are people who have had to figure out this problem, um, you know, how to survive in a, in a world of incredible overabundance. And they've had to do it as a matter of life, life and death because of the severity of their addiction. But really we can all um, benefit from, from their wisdom. Yeah, and vis-a-vis my relationship with my, with my mother, you know, I, I talk about how... Um, you know, you can kind of even be addicted to uh, your own thought loops mm-hmm. um, and how those those sorts of thought loops create narratives that are not necessarily true, but but that we cling to desperately and they, they actually don't serve us well. Uh, so they're maladaptive in that, that same kind of way that, that addiction to a, a, a drug can be. Yeah, yeah, awesome. I'm curious, why... Why, why now? Like, why do you think understanding d- 
dopamine and just kind of its 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 mechanisms like why is this even more important than, than like ever before well we're living in a time of unprecedented access to highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors and at the touch of a finger we can have almost anything we want instantly at least in in rich nations um, and even the poorest of the poor have more access to luxury goods and cheap dopamine than, than ever before. We have more leisure time. We have more disposable income. And at the same time, uh, we're seeing rising rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide, especially in rich nations. There's a very clear correlation between uh, the wealthiest countries also being the countries most afflicted by rising rates of mental illness. And I think those things are connected. And I lay out in the book exactly what I think is happening there. Yeah. Can you actually talk about that? Just that idea of this overabundance, like why that should be a good thing. Like we have, you know, I always think about, especially as like a life coach, health coach, I always think about this idea of the abundance mindset versus like a scarcity mindset. Right. And connecting with abundance, I think is a really valuable thing. It's, it's a good thing when you're, when you think you have, you don't have enough, you live in lack, you live in scarcity. Like Usually I just see people living in fear and not living to the highest version of yourself. But now here it is kind of the thinking is, wait, this overabundance is actually a problem. Can you kind of talk about that? Yeah. I mean, the fundamental problem is that our brains, which have evolved over millions of years of evolution to approach pleasure and avoid pain reflexively without thought, uh, are not evolved for a world of abundance. They're evolved for a world of scarcity and ever-present danger. Um, and the way that we process pleasure and pain is specifically engineered to keep us seeking, never satisfied with what we have, always looking for more. But when you live in a world of more, um, that biological system goes haywire. And the result is that we end up in a dopamine deficit state, which really is akin to a clinical depression. And I think that's what's happened, that on an individual level and as nations, we are suffering physiologically from the problem of too many rewards and too much pleasure. And we are physiologically in a dopamine deficit state as a result. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of unhappiness and complex misery compounded by the guilt of being unhappy since we all recognize really how privileged we are. Yeah. So it, it, it almost kind of sounds like you're saying too, it's like, right, this thing right here, I'm holding up my cell phone. We have this overabundance, right? We have this access to information. Like this morning, I was even doing stuff. I'm like, why am I on my phone? I don't. I've done my morning stuff. Now I can get. Now I need to actually get some work done. And I'm thinking. I was thinking. I'm thinking about. about I'm going to interview you today. And I'm thinking. I've just you know reread your book for the second time. And I'm thinking, oh yeah, here it is. This overabundance. I I have all of this. I have this at the access. You know, the, my fingertips. But you know, having having that at like any time that I want then it's like, it's just not enough. So then you're seeking it more and more and more because you're trying to over, um, over hit that dopamine. Is that kind of what you're saying? Like you're trying, you're, you've already gotten a dopamine hit from it. So now you need even more to try to get to a higher level. Right. I mean, so the first thing to recognize is that our smartphones and the things that we access on our smartphones are drugs. They're digital drugs. They cause the release of dopamine in the brain's reward pathway, just like more traditional drugs do, like cocaine or heroin or uh, alcohol. Um, and the way that the brain responds to any increase, especially a sudden increase in dopamine, 
is to downregulate our own dopamine production and transmission, not just to baseline levels, but below baseline levels. That's, it. That's to say a transient or temporary dopamine deficit state before going back to baseline, which is what neuroscientists call homeostasis. So that means that every time we do something pleasurable, the response is this moment of sort of dopamine freefall and craving and wanting to recreate that feeling. Now, if we didn't have immediate access to that reward, then we would wait it out and we would restore homeostasis and we wouldn't be in that craving state. But we don't have to wait anymore, right? We can instantly regenerate that feeling, but we need then over time more potent forms of the drug, more of the drug in order to you know, stay out of that dopamine deficit state. And then ultimately, the brain just compensates by just completely shutting off, you know, our dopamine factories. And then, then we're, you know, then we've essentially changed our hedonic or joy set point. And now we need to use our drug not to, not to feel good, but just to feel normal. And when we're not constantly stimulating ourselves, we're experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and craving. Wow. I remember reading recently, and it might have been in your book, actually, um, this idea that what they do with rats and that rats that were deprived of dopamine, they died in, like, um, I don't want to say instantaneously, but, like, very quickly, right? Are you familiar with that? Yeah, so that's, that's a, I I mentioned those experiments in my book. Um, That has to do with the fact that dopamine is probably even more important for motivation to get the reward than the pleasure of ingesting the reward itself. And a series of very famous experiments have shown that if you engineer a rat to not have dopamine in the reward pathway of the brain, if you give that rat food, it will eat the food and you know seem to get pleasure from the food as much as you can tell a rat is having pleasure. But if you put that food like a body length away so that the rat has to get up and get it, the, the rat will essentially starve to death because it's not motivated to go get the food. So dopamine, there's a whole hypothesis in neuroscience that that dopamine is actually more important for motivation than the experience of pleasure itself. I I think dopamine, I think the science shows that that it's really related to both of those phenomena. It just, it really hits home this, this idea though, like you said, we're at all time highs of suicide, depression, anxiety, and it just it's it's amazing that if you just take that molecule of dopamine if you just take that away like within weeks uh, you know a rat is is dead and it just makes me think about everybody yeah going through these states of just de- like you mentioned depression anxiety suicide i mean wow like dopamine seems to be a pretty major driver i would th- i would think yeah and and the pro- the big problem is that it's very hard to see the cause and effect between the ways that we are stimulating ourselves with these small hits of dopamine all day long, whether it's our smartphone or our cup of joe in the morning or more significant, you know, drugs or TikTok or whatever it is, cannabis, you know, alcohol. Um, it's really hard to see that that is the driver of the dopamine deficit state because in the moment that those drugs make us feel good or better, right? Or we wouldn't, we wouldn't indulge in them. What we can't see is the long-term physiologic changes that happen in the brain where those drugs are actually the cause of this physiologic dopamine deficit state over time as the brain tries to compensate for this fire hose of dopamine. 
Um, and, and that's why one of the things I recommend in my book to sort of disrupt this system is a dopamine fast for long enough to reset reward pathways so that we can see that we feel better when we're not ingesting our drug of choice. But you need long enough because initially, of course, you feel worse because you're, you know, you're in withdrawal. Yeah. Okay, great. Can you talk about that? A couple, so a, a couple of things. One is what you just mentioned. How long typically are you seeing someone needs to do this dopamine fast to kind of reset those, those pathways? In my clinical experience, once we've become addicted to something, and addiction is broadly defined as continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others, and whether or not we see that harm. So sometimes we'll recognize it, sometimes we won't. But if the harm is there, then we've entered, you know, uh, we've entered the realm of addiction. And in my experience, once we've become addicted, the average amount of time it takes to reset uh, reward pathways to be able to not be in the state of craving, withdrawal, anxiety, depression, and to be able to enjoy other more modest rewards is about four weeks. Um, sometimes people, you know, re-regulate sooner. Others need longer. For people with severe addictions, it's not as if four weeks is like, okay, I'm good to go. It's just that four weeks is like the beginning of the sun coming out and feeling better and recognizing true cause and effect for, for many people, you know, healing, actual, you know, more complete healing can take months to years. But in my experience, you know, whether or not the drug is a pornography or cannabis or cocaine, um, it's really at about four weeks where in most people, um, you'll see a kind of a turning point. And this is supported by uh, some limited data. There's not much on this showing uh, that if you, um, image the brain of people who have been using, uh, you know, significant drugs like cocaine and heroin. Um, two weeks after they've stopped using their drug, they're still in a dopamine deficit state. So their dopamine transmission in this specific reward circuit is below that of people who haven't been using drugs. So that, that tells you that two weeks is not enough to reset those reward pathways. Um, clinical experience, and this is corroborated with a lot of, uh, you know, my, my colleagues, but also oh, is, is that it takes minimum four weeks. There's an interesting uh, published experiment by Shuckett et al. showing that if you take adult males who are addicted to alcohol and also meeting criteria for clinical depression, and you put them in a secure environment um, where they have no access to alcohol, but that's it. You don't give them any treatment for their depression. You just don't give them access to alcohol. At the end of four weeks, 80% of those individuals will no longer meet criteria for major depression. So the point there is just by stopping drinking, the depression resolves. This is really, really important because I have lots of patients who, don't, who come to me seeking primarily help for depression, anxiety, insomnia, attentional problems, whatever. And they're also using drugs or behaviors in an addictive way. And, you know, 20 years ago, I would have written a prescription for an antidepressant. Now, what I do is write a prescription for a dopamine fast because my clinical experience is similar to uh, the experimental literature, which is a dopamine fast alone, people will feel significantly better uh, without any other intervention at about four weeks. Wow. That's so huge. I remember reading a paper not too long ago about obesity and depression. And it said really the same thing that you just said is that are are people really depressed because they're 
you know, they're overweight or is it the fact that if they just lost weight, their depression would somehow magically also go away? And so it kind yeah, of- Yeah, this is really, I mean, there's a lot of literature on this. You know, there's a whole literature tracking people who quit smoking cigarettes, you know, who in, who basically say, well, the reason I smoke is because I'm, I'm anxious. And of course, you know, I can understand that because in the moment, smoking a cigarette alleviates the anxiety. But if you then follow people who quit smoking prospectively for 5, 10, 15 years, and there's there's data on this, the longer they have quit smoking, the less their anxiety. So it, it there is this strange physiologic loop that we really lack a capacity to appreciate in real time, which is that our ingestion of these highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors makes us depressed and anxious. And our cessation of these highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors in the long run alleviates these psychiatric symptoms. Yeah, love that. You know what, I was wondering, I thought I read this also and probably in your book, um, even though, like you said, it resets the brain within those probably those four weeks, that pathway is still like, is kind of like open. If I were to go back and let's say do nicotine or something, it's like that pathway is still kind of open. It's not like the pathway just goes away. It's it's there for like specifically for nicotine, right? It's is that right? actually for for all addictive drugs and behaviors. I mean, it really does sort of leave a permanent uh, footprint in yeah. the brain. Um, and and we have animal data to show this, and also just human lived experience. And I, you know, anybody deeply familiar with the problem of addiction can tell a story of someone who's been in sustained recovery for a long time, who then is re-exposed to their drug and immediately plummets mm -hmm. uh, into, you know, into their, their addiction as if, you know, they had never had that recovery time um, or gets a, another drug, right, across addiction that then they get addicted to very quickly or that triggers them to get a uh, relapse to their drug of choice. The animal literature shows <clears throat> that if you take rats and get them addicted to cocaine, then remove the cocaine for a year, which is about a rat's lifetime, and then um, expose them to cannabis, they will get addicted much more quickly to cannabis uh, compared to rats who had never been exposed to cocaine. So the prior addiction experience primes them for future addiction. Also, if you take an animal and you expose them, a rat, and expose it to cocaine over seven days, you will see it goes from kind of you know, a kind of sedentary behavior to this running frenzy. Then if you take the cocaine away for, again, a year, a rat lifetime, and then re-expose them, a single injection of cocaine will put that rat into a running frenzy. Again, the point being that there's clearly some kind of circuit mm -hmm. that remains um, intact that can be uh, renewed almost instantly with with exposure which is why, you know, people with severe addiction have to be really vigilant um, about, about not being triggered for relapse. Yeah. Let's talk about, you have this beautiful acronym in the book that just so happens to spell out the word dopamine. Yeah. And you use this formula to help a lot of the addicts or your, some of your patients that come through. I mean, you've got some great testimonials. Uh, I'm thinking of that woman who who was, had a cannabis addiction, actually, and, and, anxi and severe anxiety. And, and I think one of the, the heroes in your book is this chronic masturbator. 
I mean, when I read this guy's story, I thought, oh my God, like just you hear his story weave throughout the book to the very end of the book. And I'm thinking this poor guy, like he will never stop this habit. I mean, he loses mm. his marriage and all these things, but you have this beautiful frame framework dopamine that helps has helped several people. Can you kind of, can you break that down for us? Yeah. Um, and, and you know, dopamine, it's, it's sort of a combination of like standard psychotherapeutic approaches like motivational interviewing plus actual practical interventions like the dopamine fast, um, which is really applied neuroscience, um, plus some tricks of the trade that I've, I've learned over the years. So yeah, D stands for data. And that's where um, I ask patients to just tell me what they're using, how much and how often. And the purpose of that is partially, of course, for me to obtain the information. But the other key point is that it forces the, the patient to actually put into words what they have been doing. And something really remarkable happens when people articulate uh, their habits is that the habits uh, become real to them in ways that it's, it's impossible uh, for that to, to, to be when, when it, they're still sort of just hanging around in the dark recesses of, of their unconscious, so to speak. So that articulation, of, well, you know, on Monday I drank this much or smoked this much or did this much, spent this much time on TikTok. And on Tuesday, it was that. And then at the end of it, often patients will say, wow, that, that's a lot. Like, I, I hadn't realized that I was spending so much time, energy, money, creativity using my drug of choice. So that's a very powerful, potentially powerful moment of insight. The O stands for objectives. That's where I try to figure out why does this person use, what, it, what, is, what is beneficial for them. Um, the, uh, the P stands for problems. What is not beneficial for them, what's not working out. And that way we can kind of do a sort of pros and cons um, type of thing. And then the A stands for abstinence, and that's the dopamine fast or abstinence trial, where I get people to try to stop their drug of choice for long enough to reset reward pathways, which is really important because, again, it gives people access to the joy of more modest rewards, but also potentially creates that flash of insight where people can see true cause and effect. Um, M stands for mindfulness. There's really no better opportunity to practice mindfulness than to not reach for our drug of choice and to be forced to sit with those uncomfortable emotions and just observe them without judgment. I stands for insight. Again, I've talked about the, the various steps or levels of insight in this process. Um, N stands for next step. So if patients come back a month later, if they were Able, if they were not able to abstain, uh, then we talk about why that is. You know, that, that's important data too. If they were able to abstain, then we do another pros and cons list. What was good about not using? What was bad about not using? Um, many times patients will have a long list of how much better they feel. Um, the, big, the big negative is usually a social negative. I wasn't able to hang out with my friends who are all, you know, we, we socialize and use. That's kind of our social glue. Um, and so I just validate that. And then the, um, yeah, so then the next steps is like, well, what next? The N is for next steps. And that's where uh, I say, okay, well, now that you feel so much better, if they do feel better, do you want to continue to abstain or do you want to go back to using? And most of the time people want to go back to using, but they want to use differently. So then we talk about self-finding and a very specific plan for what that looks like. Specificity is key here and actually like writing it down and tracking it. Again, all having to do with, we're very good at going into this vague space in our minds where we kind of 
uh, round down, you know, round down. Uh, so, uh, you know, being really vigilant and being accountable to themselves and others about what they're actually doing. And then E of dopamine, the last letter stands for experiment. And that's where, again, you go back out into the world with your plan and you see how it goes and, you know, you bring it back a month later and say, okay, what that worked or that didn't work. And yeah. so this process goes around and around. And ultimately, most patients with severe addiction conclude that moderation is not going to work for them. <laughs> um, you know, a few a few are able to moderate, but most people conclude it doesn't work. But they have to sort of come to it on their own. Yeah. I, I love what you said about even next steps. And I work with a lot of clients when we're trying to build new habits. I always think about that. It's And I, I say like that specificity, the specificity is yeah. key. Like we say things to ourselves all the time. Oh, I want to eat healthier. Right. Um, I want to work out more. Okay. Well, show me your schedule. I would love to see where, right. where is that. Where in time. And uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you're going to work out? Or eating healthy. What does that mean? Is Let me see your meal plan. Let's let's actually see it. Right. And I see yeah. So humans much better. Are, yes, it is. The and the specific, yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. So something really interesting happens. If given the choice between like working out or not working out or using our drug or not using our drug in that moment without any pre-contemplation of that, of anticipating that moment, we will almost all choose not to work out and use our drug, right? We're just, again, it's reflexive. We're wired to approach pleasure and avoid pain. But if even 24 hours in advance, we make a schedule or make a list or say, tomorrow I'm going to do X and I'm not going to do Y, it's really amazing that little act allows us to really act differently in that moment. It's, it's really fascinating how that works. Yeah. And I love the end too, experiment, because yeah. so often, and I, I've, James Altucher, he's he's a podcaster, author. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but yeah. he he talks about this idea of just you know he has a his, one of his newest books is Skip the Line, and he talks about how to really get ahead in life by and and avoiding the ten thousand hour rule by just running ten thousand different mini experiments. He's like, listen, yeah. just go out and run an experiment this week, see what happens. If it doesn't work, it's just an experiment. You got some data back, yeah. And now with that data, we can go do something. And I think yeah. we so often get to this point of like with our habits and it's it's a personal flaw against me oh my god i'm just a failure no we tried something new this week it didn't work and let's try let's now evaluate this using data and observation and let's just see what we need to tweak that's it yeah i agree with you and i think the corollary to that is that we often fail to notice an experiment with good outcome like we don't take a moment and pause and say, well that that actually worked for me Hey, let's let's put that in my toolbox, or let's do that again tomorrow. Um, we kind of tend to sort of take it for granted. Um, it's like you know, and it can be a really little thing. Like I put my running shoes right next to my bed, so that when I woke up, you know, they were right there. It's like okay, I guess I'll you know, I guess I'll go exercise or whatever. It's a lot of little things that we have to you know, we just have to notice. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about pain and pleasure because yeah. these are the big drivers of dopamine and i've always heard this phrase i think tony robbins popular as i'm sure lots of other people have but he said we'll do more to avoid pain than to actually gain pleasure but in chapter seven you talk about this idea about embracing pain and you actually wrote by pressing on the pain side of the balance we might be able to might we be able to achieve a more enduring source of pleasure can you talk can you talk a little bit about that why maybe we should start experiencing more pain 
Yeah, so this is a whole branch of science called hormesis, and hormesis is Greek for to set in motion. And what the science of hormesis shows is that when organisms from fruit flies to humans are exposed to mild to moderate doses, doses of toxic stimuli, like, like you know, very mild doses of radiation or mild doses of exercise, which is actually to toxic to cells, or uh, mild doses of freezing temperatures or hot temperatures or um, gravitational changes, that those organisms turn out to be more resilient and uh, enduring and live longer and are healthier than organisms who are not, not exposed to those um, toxic stimuli. And so the prescription, if you will, in the book is that not only should we um, you know, not overindulge in these intoxicants, um, but that we should intentionally invite pain into our lives. Um, and, and, you know, this is things like exercise, ice cold water baths, various forms of mind body work from yoga to martial arts to, you know, you name it, but also cognitive and emotional challenging tasks, um, you know, forcing ourselves to stretch ourselves cognitively or emotionally, anything that requires sustained uh, attention and effort. And what we see is that when we do that, the body responds by actually starting to upregulate dopamine and other feel-good neurotransmitters like serotonin, norepinephrine. Um, and this is, you know, this has been documented in many, many studies. Uh, and yet, you know, it, people, I think, uh, haven't yet fully embraced this science because because we're naturally inclined, you know, reflexively to avoid pain. Um, but also because I think we have a kind of a societal narrative that says, wow, if I'm unhappy or uncomfortable, I should try to be in more comfort. I should try to, you know, do something that will make myself more comfortable when in fact a more powerful potential antidote uh, to our discomfort is to make ourselves more uncomfortable than whatever discomfort we're feeling and thereby trigger our body's own healing mechanisms. Yeah, I love that. I, and you have a great story about, I think, someone in the, the book that just used ice baths to reset. He like used a, a new, made it a new habit. He replaced a bad habit with this new habit, and it, it was just, and stuck with it. And yeah, the, the yeah. surging. And I think you even mentioned that the, the neuronal network that's created from 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 uh, from just ice baths. I thought that was really interesting too. So really cool yeah, stuff. I mean, there's there's uh, you know there's physiologic data sh showing that freezing ice cold temperatures, which are toxic, um, cause this burst of uh, physiologic dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin, even uh, uh, hippocampal neurogenesis. Yeah. So you know new neurons growing, and it, that's important because uh, we're essentially you know. What happens as we age is that we, we lose more and more neurons uh, in the pruning process in adolescence. And although we can still generate new neurons throughout the lifespan, um, you know, it's much slower. But reliable data uh, for what causes or augments neurogenesis or new neurons clearly show that ice cold temperatures and exercise are at the top of the list. Yeah. You, you've got a great chapter on radical honesty. I'm looking at the time. I know we won't have too much time to get it. I, I can't stress enough. People need to go out and read the book. I thought radical honesty was the chapter that really hit me. 
and I just think about it with my two boys who are eight and four, and I'm always thinking like, wow, how do we incorporate some of these ideas in our own life? And Radical Honesty was a chapter that hit me, so I can't say that enough. But I wanted to talk to you about shaming, which I thought was interesting because shaming to me is, shaming and this feeling of judgment is one of like the lowest vibrational forms that we can feel. And in those states, humans can do some terrible things, unfortunately. And you've got this great chapter in the book called Pro-Social Shaming. And you talk about this idea of breaking, there's this cycle. And so I was wondering if you could talk about the typical cycle that leads to shame and that every one of us kind of just sticks in usually. But by using pro-social shaming, we can break this cycle. Yeah, so I, I absolutely agree with you that, that shame is probably the most powerful human emotion, shame and grief probably. But shame is way up there and it's one that I think we don't, fully recognize even when it's happening. Sometimes we do, but shame is really about, um, you know, when we transgress the norms or rules of whatever our, our social group is and, um, either anticipate being found out or are found out. And then the incredibly powerful emotion that accompanies that is essentially fear of being cast out. Um, which, which is, you know, probably the most terrible thing that, that a human could, could imagine because we are such social animals. Yeah. Um, so what I argue in the book is that, you know, we, of course, you know, we talk about shame as this terrible thing and shaming people and how bad that is and it can lead to terrible outcomes. And, and I agree with that. But on the other hand, we need shame. I mean, without shame, you know, we would descend into chaos so what are the ingredients of healthy or pro-social shame? And what, what I, what I, the distinction that I try to make in the book is that the, the, the distinction is really not so much our emotional experience, our internal emotional experience of shame, but how others respond to our shame. And pro-social shame happens when people respond by saying, hey, yeah, you know what? You messed up, but we still love you. You are still unconditionally a part of our group. And here is how you can make amends. Here are some of the steps you can take to make up for what you did wrong, as opposed to destructive shame or, or, or what, what others have called malignant shame, where we don't give people that opportunity to make amends. So either they have to lie about what how they did, right, which then just perpetuates the cycle of shame, or, uh, or they're shunned for what they did, which means that they're cast out, which doesn't give them any opportunity to make amends. So that's kind of the distinction that, that I'm trying to make there. Uh, just talking more neutrally about the role, including the important evolutionary and social role of shame and how we as a society can think about that to try to construct groups that allow people to mess up experience shame, you know, because without the experience of that emotion, there would be no deterrent uh, for future transgressions. There would be no motivation to change the behavior. And we need that motivation. So you have to have go through the pain of the emotion, but there's got to be a way where you can say, okay, I messed up, but here's how I can move forward in my life. Yeah, I love that. And, and you even talk so beautifully about how I think you know, that I think that, or it might have been tied even with the radical honesty, but and having that empathy, like there's a way to have empathy with each other, but still kind of hold our boundaries. And when you do this in a very healthy way, you that you can, you know, from the hormonal standpoint, you are creating oxytocin 
Right. That's that feel good hormone. And that's that closeness that we feel with someone else. You can get it from hugging someone. And so I'm just thinking, oh, if my wife and I were to argue, but there's some kind of radical honesty, there's some kind of, yes, there's some shame involved. But if, if we can come together in an empathetic way, then there's oxytocin that's created. And that is also a pathway to dopamine, you said. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, that's where radical, you know, that it's so hard when we've done something. And I talk in the book about, you know, stealing my kids how, uh, Easter candy and how I lied about <laughs> eating great. it. And, yeah. and then they started to blame each other for having, you know, it just, it's the ripple effect of the lies is terrible. Yeah. And of course, that moment of like fessing up, it, we, we have such a powerful resistance to that. But when we do it, it can, and, and, the, and the people to, with whom we're honest receive our honesty in that, in that empathic way, it's an incredible opportunity for intimacy. And intimacy, true intimacy, is a, probably one of the most powerful sources of healthy and adaptive dopamine. A couple more questions, and then I wanted to jump into some lightning round questions, and we'll wrap it up. Um, any any exciting projects that, that you're working on right now? Oh my gosh, I'm I've been so busy <laughs> since the release of Dopamine Nation. I've barely had a moment to, and I've been also involved in ongoing uh, opioid litigation as a medical expert witness, and that's still taking a lot of my time. Plus, you know, seeing patients and teaching, so I really haven't had a moment to sort of reflect on these sort of sidebar you know, more creative or let's say less mainstream things that I, I, I do, but hopefully the time will come when I will have time for that again. Yeah. And then anything I didn't ask you that you wish I had? No, that was great. Lots of great, great questions. Thanks for the conversation. Yeah. Appreciate that. Let's just do a couple lightning round questions and then I'll, I'll get you out of here before, uh, your next, uh, your next appointment. Um, I'm curious if the old you could see the new you, what would the new you say? Do I have a new you? I mean, is there a new <laughs> I mean, you're me? Constantly evolving, right? I, we're, I, it's interesting. I I, th I think about this sometimes. I mean, we're both constantly changing, and yet I have a sense of kind of a core self from my earliest memory that is sort of unchanged. You know, a kind of a a sort of I, I, don't, I don't know if you want to call it soul, but a sort of specificity of me you know, neither good nor bad. It just is what it is that has endured all the way through that I really believe in, in terms of believing that we all have, have that experience, that we can change our behaviors and habits, but there's this kind of preserved core self that's always there. Yeah. What, uh, what are some choices that you think you made that made you who you are today? Um, well, I think a big professional choice that for me took some personal courage was to speak out against the overprescribing of psychotropics and opioid medications, um, you know, to, to write about that and, and speak about that um, with a lot of, you know, negative repercussions, um, you know, a lot of people angry about those, uh, those perspectives, but I feel that that was the right thing, um, you know, and I, I appreciate that not everybody agrees with my perspective, but I, I just feel that it was important and right to do that. And in doing that, I, I don't know, I feel I did the right thing and that, that feels good. Yeah. Radical honesty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the courage, you know, to, to do that, even if you're going against the stream. Yep. Yeah. I think when you stand up in your true self, who you identify, what you align with that vision, I just feel like so many amazing things happen. And yeah. even if it's tough, I'm sure you connected 
by doing that, you connected with so many other people that were aligned with what you were talking about and you were yeah. able to meet and influence so many other people. So, yeah. Yeah. Which is why I think it's so important that with, you know, this digital age and the constant distractions, we really recognize what we're losing when we're constantly reacting, you know, to, uh, a simulated world We're we're losing that groundedness in our own being and the opportunity to commune with our own thoughts, ideas, you know, dreams, hopes, fears. Um, and it's important to take the time to, 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 you know, know ourselves. And we can't do that if we're, you know, watching TikTok all day long. Yeah. I'm a big reader. Any, any big books that, uh, like, are there like a top one to three that just jumped out at, that had a lot of impact on your life that you'd recommend other people read? Oh my gosh. I mean, books have been a constant companion, you know, for, for good and bad in my life. I don't, I wouldn't even want to single out a top three sort of in any given year. I probably have a top one or two, but, um, you know, books are, books are really important, have been really important in my life. And, um, I mean, I really feel like books are conversations with the authors that are so they're like the repository of, um, you know, an opportunity to learn about others' experiences and ideas that just are really important to me. I couldn't even, uh, I, I can't even imagine like singling out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Any uh, last two questions, we'll wrap it up. Any rituals or practices or anything that you do like on a regular basis? I know some people do like, yeah. So I, yep. I start, I I start most days with some kind of um, physical um, mind body work. So either, like a stretching or yoga routine and or a walk and or a bike ride and or a swim. To me, that sort of is, is, is really important for sort of resetting my reward pathways and, and putting me on the right foot. And I will add um, that I do, I almost always, not almost always, I, I always do those routines without listening to anything um, so that I can kind of also connect with the stream of my own thoughts. Um, that's, that's for me. Um, I know a lot of people exercise listening to things, and I think that's great too. But for me, it's kind of accessing that flow, which is uh, really important for me to feel balanced, really. Yeah. Last but not least, Dr. Lemke, where can people find you? Well, I mean, they can find me here on your podcast. Uh, They can find me in my book. I'm not on social media, um, you know, which really shouldn't surprise. You're not going to be on TikTok, huh? Darn. No, I'm not. I I really hope and pray I'm not going to be on TikTok. Uh, Yeah, so those are the places. Awesome. Dr. Lemke, thank you so much for your time and for being on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, that's it for today, folks. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Hack Life. And if you did, please share this episode on social media and then tag me at Joel Levin Coaching. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes and give us a five-star rating so that you don't miss any other great episodes. We can only spread our message when you share this knowledge with others that need it. Thanks a ton, guys, for the support. <laughs>